Hello and welcome to Extra Innings from the Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Denise Barron, and you might be wondering, why is this podcast called The Ballpark? Well, it's not just because we're all rabid baseball fans here at the U.S. Center. Baseball actually offers an apt comparison for the sport of politics, economics, even government. We asked Derek Vallis, another baseball fan and political economist here at the LSE, to join Chris Gilson and I to talk about the application of baseball theory to social science. Yeah, this isn't like a 20-minute yeah. lecture kind no, of thing. No, no, I've just no. got some just, stuff. Just talking yeah. about it. Even though Derek is a Boston Red Sox fan, and I'm a Chicago White Sox fan, I don't hold that against him. You know, the ballpark, it's a great title for a podcast on U.S. politics. Because uh, it's constant metaphorical and, and allegorical allusions to baseball and sports. But the question is whether it's actually closer to baseball or football in American politics these days. So we can get to that at the end if you want. But I have a, I have a compelling case to make for why we should talk about football instead. Maybe. And it could be a successful one called... Uh... The stadium, the I guess, stadium instead of the ballpark. Like <laughs> or the gridiron. The gridiron. Nice. Now we're talking. Yeah, now yeah. we're talking. Or like a parallel one on something. Or if we, if we franchise out the ballpark. Yeah, right. It's a different topic. <laughs> nice. So I like it. On like economic policy, we call it a gridiron. I like it. I like it. The important thing to say at the outset here is this is not the first time that someone has you know, made the useful connection between baseball and politics. Uh, you can do a Google search for baseball, you know, allegories and parables and metaphors that are present in sort of political discourse in the U.S., and you'll come up with literally millions of hits. For people that don't know baseball, it's important to say something about baseball, I guess. Baseball isn't particularly popular outside the U.S. unless you go to places like Canada, India, and actually the Netherlands it's particularly popular. So maybe these should be your new target demos. Uh, but the idea is it's it's a slow game, it's a technical game, it's a strategy game, uh, and the metaphors that come out of it and the, the sort of useful literary devices you would know anyways. So hitting it out of the park, you know, hitting a home run. Uh, we can go to other sports like basketball, talk about slam dunks uh, or holes in one. The idea about performance and, and using metaphors to talk about how somebody's doing uh, are absolutely everywhere in American politics. Uh, it's about who's up at bat, whose turn it is to perform, uh, how they're performing, how the crowds react, whether it's thunderous applause or whether it's booing uh, sort of behind the scenes, uh, and who's on deck and who's up next. And the, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a, a lot of great resources you can go to here, but one of the other factors is that it's also a confusing landscape sometimes. There's a lot of players, there's a lot of statistics. And so the best way to understand how confusing baseball is to go back and listen to Abbott and Costello's Who's on First. I mean, this is the classic sort of storytelling about how confusing baseball can be. But the same is true in politics. Half the time we're trying to figure out who's in the lead, who's in what position, what they've been doing performance-wise, and what it's going to look like going forward. And I, I think one thing I've sort of observed is that baseball has sort of unusual events like perfect games and things like that. And politics seems to me to have certain things that are you know, contested yeah. conventions, something that kind of only comes around sure. once every X amount of years. Or yeah, so you get you get the laundry list of outlier events, and you know it's it's something like a no hitter for a pitcher to go and, and, and pitch the perfect game uh, is just as rare as a politician doing the perfect win in a in a debate. It's almost impossible to do. Uh, in the sense of, you know, you've got three and a half hours where you're bound to screw something up or, or you know, sort of miss a pitch or whatever it is. The it's same. similar because 
a lot of times if you do, if you have a no-hitter, that's just one game. Yeah. And if you have a perfect debate, oh, yeah. a lot of people don't oh, watch yeah. debates or base their votes on it either. Yeah. So they can be these like remarkable things that happen that really don't shift the landscape or shift a season or an election. Right. But a lot's made of them in the media. Like they're a really big deal at the right. time. And then afterwards you're just like, well, that was a, that was a clip. Yeah. So we've got sort of, in American politics and in baseball, you've got sort of two sides of the same coin. So on the one hand, yes, it's a long, drawn-out game with a long, drawn-out season. So in an average baseball season, you've got 162 regular season games for a team. And then you're looking at additional weeks of play if you make it into the playoffs and into the postseason. And the same is true in politics. It's a long, drawn-out campaign, but at the same time, both treat strategy in a micro sense. So micro strategy is not just about how do you make really small decisions, but how do you make really small decisions that aggregate to a winning strategy. And so you might be able to toss a game out the window and say, hey, it's just one loss. But the idea is you're also fine-tuning what your hitting order is and, and who you're putting in by way of pitchers. You're thinking three games out. Uh, to, to go into a completely different sporting metaphor, the sailing term is thinking two miles out. You're constantly watching the horizon for weather to come. And so the idea there is the, the strategy of making decisions, you know, at two inches in front of you is the same, really, as making decisions two miles in front of you. So that's, that's one of those other similarities between baseball and politics where you're thinking about short-term decisions with a long-term in mind. And so that's, you know, in full knowledge that your season is long and drawn out and tiring and you've got limited resources. It's about how you best spend them now and over the future uh, to get performance in the face of adversity. It seems to be a very American practice of using sport as a metaphor, or baseball as a metaphor. Are there any other countries that, like, we don't really do the same thing with cricket, which is not a dissimilar game, actually, in terms of a long game of strategy. We don't talk about cricket metaphors in UK politics. They might do in India. Yeah. But uh, do you know of any, is that a really American? I know that game? Americans use the term sticky wicket without knowing what a wicket is. They know, <laughs> they know it's a problematic situation to be in. Uh, you know, by way of, of other countries that use these kind of metaphors. I mean, Canada has a great baseball scene, so I'm sure that it's there. Uh, but the idea is that politics, depending on the system that you're sort of inbuilt into uh, and that you've inherited, it's set up as a contest. And so the sporting metaphor is sort of a transnational or transsystemic conversation in the sense that it's frequently one team against another team. Uh, it's how do I best strategically position my players to, to outperform the other team? How do I outsmart the other guy? Uh, and we know better than anybody else here at the LSC that polling numbers are everywhere. So the idea is we're constantly taking temperatures of electorates, of public officials, we're looking at strategic behavior. And so these are all sort of complementary sports metaphors in the sense of, you know, to make the old joke, things matter to the third decimal place in both businesses which is to say that you don't say somebody's batting 0.5, you say somebody's batting 500, because it matters that much how precise it is. And in the political space, we see the same thing. So if you look at the numbers, for example, in, in current day, you know, current affairs, we're looking at how many UK nationals support Brexit. Uh, we're looking at what popular opinion is on monetary policy and fiscal stimulus across Europe. So these ideas are, are similar in the sense of we're constantly gauging both how the fans are responding in other words, the population is responding, but also how the players are acting strategically and, and what the right moves are in the long run. Politics and baseball seem to be very much sort of data geek. Mm, so the, for sure. And, and there's been yeah. a lot more sort of data geekery in, in both in the last sort of five, ten years. Is there kind of a link, do you think? Or? I, I think it's an easy 
transition to make. And so, you know, the celebrity in the data geek world is Nate Silver. And Nate Silver is a guy who's, who's brilliant statistically. But he made the transition from baseball to politics almost seamlessly because it's the same game at the end of the day. It's a long, drawn-out, complicated process with a lot of players and a lot of variables at stake. And the smarter you can be about thinking about those strategically, the smarter you can play at the end of the day. Uh, so sure, there's, there's a celebrity aspect here that comes from some sort of the techie geeks who are behind all this stuff. That includes, I think, us, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you want to think about it. But the science of this is equally tied to the art, which is to say that you can have the best strategy in history, and the second a curveball gets thrown at you, it doesn't matter what your strategy is, you've got to respond to whatever's in front of you. So the old Mike Tyson line, not to use another sporting metaphor, was to say everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. And then it's you've got to respond. And so the idea here is, you know, you can talk about the current U.S. election. Marco Rubio enters the race as a promising candidate, and he's getting sort of left hooks and jabs from Trump for month after month. And the idea is, is he ends up succumbing to it. Nobody really saw that coming in a statistical sense because Trump in and of himself is an outlier of a sort. He's sort of an exogenous shock on the model if you're a political scientist. And if you're the sports sort of guy, he's, he's the guy we pulled out of the minors who you know, seemed to have a prospect. He jumps into the game and it turns out he's a rock star to a certain extent. Uh, again, in his particular silo, whatever that means. Uh, but he, he's playing to win. It's a natural thing that in politics you have two teams playing each other, especially in the U.S. with two-party system. Um, I, is that more of a is that a symptom of our current political landscape that it it's turned into such a competitive thing? You know, like we're not talking about um, you don't hear construction metaphors. <laughs> and it's a natural thing like building a house yeah. and like. Raising a barn, you know, these would all be very natural right, things to talk right. about in terms of governing. But instead, we we stick to the comp competitive sports metaphors. Yeah, there's there's not as much glitter that goes into municipal bonds for infrastructure building. <laughs> I, I think is the right answer to the question. Um, what what's the best way to talk about it? Uh, contest? Partly is important in the sense of both the game and the outcome, and. I'll sort of leapfrog what I was going to say at the end of this, but the idea is when we use the sports metaphor, it's to tie into the contestation and the competition that is part of the landscape in politics. And that includes, you know, every level of government in the United States. That's from everything from town dog catcher to president of the United States. There's elections for all these things. And quite frankly, there's competition at every level. Sometimes it's better competition than others. Uh, but the idea there is the usefulness of the sports analogy, the usefulness of thinking about it like contest, is because A, there's a lot at stake, and B, there's value to both sides, which is to say that putting both sides in contest is really a question about who do you stand with, who do you root for, what do you believe in, what are you hoping for as an outcome. Uh, so there's a role to be played by fans in this, both politically and, and in the sports sort of vertical. Uh, but the difference, and the important one at that, is that you know, and this has been said most best in the Atlantic back in 2011, because everybody talks about baseball and politics. Their comment was, both are about winning, but politics is about winning and then something else. The idea being that the contest that is politics, that is elections, that is campaigning, is just a preamble or a prelude to the policy conversations that happen after the fact. And so there's a lot of ways you can think about that, because the data that we look at in terms of campaigns and polls and, and sort of primaries and caucus outcomes are really interesting. 
But the really great cannon fodder that we get for all our great political science models is how people behave after the fact. In other words, once you're elected to Congress, once you're, you're in the House of Representatives or you're a senator or you're a local town committee member, how are you voting on issues? This becomes the new data that we look at after the fact. And in the presidential sense, that's all the more important because what we're actually fighting about is a platform, is a personality and a decision maker more than it is just the win. And so the question that everybody is asking at the moment, or at least that I'm forcing everybody to ask at the moment, is, you know, Trump is an interesting character, but at the end of the day, him winning is just winning the presidency because I'm not really sure what the coherent platform thereafter is. In other words, I'm not sure what the agenda will be on day one through 100. And that's the really important question in, at the end of the day in the general election, in the sense that what you end up talking about is what happens after the election. And there's the policy side that comes after the contest. It's interesting sort of thinking about, uh, as you bring up the um, things about what happens in winning, with the idea that sports metaphors are all just about winning and just about the contest towards the win, right. whereas a lot of governing requires bipartisanship and compromise and start, and, and then compare that to a sort of two-year election cycle right. in the House. Do you think some of the, sometimes those sports metaphors may be actually a bit inimical in terms of getting stuff done after because it's not Trump's all about winning and he right. wants to win right. and it's all full of wins. So once he wins, he's not going to win every day because he's right. going to have to probably deal with the Congress that won't invest in. Does so does it start to break down then or can we sort of continue to co opt it in any other ways? There's no sports metaphor for cooperation and consensus building. So there is, actually. And this is this is the beauty of it. But the problem is it's within teams rather than the, the sort of playing field. And that's sort of the wrench in the engine, politically speaking, which is to say that, you know, when it comes time for the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees to play each other, I'm from Boston, so i got to tell my own team here, there's no rivalry greater than the Red Sox and the Yankees. And the difference is the teams will cooperate with each other in the sense of adhering to the rules of the game, which is to say within the construct that they play in, they're willing to play by the rules and stick to it in order to compete with each other. And that's the nature of the political landscape. But within each team, you see lots of cooperation. You see you know, pitchers and catchers, outfielders. You see designated hitters being the first guys out. And you know, that's true also in the political landscape. You see Democrats, broadly speaking, and Republicans, broadly speaking, getting behind their candidate historically. We'll see what happens this time around because there's a little bit of contestation here. Uh, but the notion is, after the fact, if you carry forward that my team won, I'm a member of this team and not the other sort of mentality, it makes it really hard to get anything done. And in a position right now where we are in the landscape, where we've got a complicated Congress, to say the least, and what will certainly be a complicated executive relationship with Congress, no matter who gets elected, uh, it's now more than ever more important to cooperate with players on the other team as opposed to just the players on your team. But this is some of the complications that come with, you know, I'm, I, we can't blame this entirely on the narrative of baseball, but the idea is these, these things are passed on. These things are structurally imposed upon us. In other words, I, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan because I grew up in Boston. And so the, uh, you know, it's, in my family, if you're a Yankees fan, you stand out like a sore thumb. And you might not get invited to Thanksgiving dinner. And so, you know, the, there's something serious and there's something cultural about being a fan, about being a team member, about belonging to a franchise. Uh, you know, in Boston we call it Red Sox Nation, 
In other words, it's it's a membership. It's a it, it, it's a collective of people, and more than anything, it behaves like a polity. We make decisions about who we think is a good manager or not. We we buy merchandise or we don't. So we behave like an economy and a polity at the same time. But that's put into you know some struggle when you go one versus the other. And you know the the other way to think about that is to come back to your sort of two party question earlier. The interesting imposition of the history of a sport like baseball as an analogy for politics is interesting because we're looking at a two-party system right now. So the typical sort of analogy that gets drawn is that the American League and the National League each have their playoffs, so we have Democratic and Republican primaries and caucuses and their nominating process. And then we go to a general election where the top player on each team plays each other and they go home with the pennant at the end of the day. Cheers are on one side of the stadium and then heads are in hands on the other side. In the political space, that's true as well. So we, we play this game. We go through the contest. We go through this structure. But the idea is there's far fewer teams. And so the complicated part about baseball's history is that it's a reasonably uneven playing field. And so this football analogy that, that we can talk about if you guys want to, there's a difference between baseball and football in the sense of most of the revenues earned by the NFL these days are through advertising. And those advertising revenues are pooled together and divided evenly amongst all the teams and all the franchises in the league. The notion being that it's a relatively even playing field that comes down to solid strategy and power players and how you manage with the funds that you're getting from, from the league. In baseball, there are franchises that historically have dominated. And in the sort of political narrative corollary, there's a story about how Democrats and Republicans are really the only players on the block. These are the only two teams that make it to the final most of the time. And so, you know, we've sort of blocked out third-party teams in this sense. So you don't, you're not seeing a lot of viable third-party candidates. You're not seeing a lot of viable independents, mostly because these are structurally designed ballgames, which is to say that there are rules for how we go about nominating a president these days. There are traditions and rituals, and we fulfill them even if they're not necessarily part and parcel of how the decision ends up being made. In other words, we know far in advance of a convention these days who's going to be the presidential nominee for a party. But it's part of the fulfilling and the spectacle aspect of ritual and tradition that's important. But part of the consequence is you, you box out teams. And so there's, you know, there's a reason that the Pittsburgh Steelers, as a football team, have made it to the most and won the most Super Bowls, whereas you don't really hear about the Pittsburgh Pirates making it to uh, the World Series and winning. I don't think they've won since the late 70s. And so the idea there is you've got a structural sort of frame that really only lets the top two teams win. It's really interesting. I've just had a, a sort of a, I'm thinking about the rules of the game as I suppose you should say either you know, the Constitution or yeah. the Supreme Court decision. And then you compare that to the UK, which has had a two party system to an extent, but obviously in the last election we had the uh, we had the uh, we had the Liberal Democrats come mm-hmm. in as that third party and we've had the rise of UKIP. Now the rules of our game are not nearly written down as in stone as much as the Constitution. We don't have a constitution. I wonder if are the rules too inflexible? Do the rules need updating yeah. to, to, the, to the national game? And in, in baseball, too, you know, as much as in politics. Yeah, this, this is part of a longer conversation, but I've often sparred with my sort of political theorist friends in the UK about the worth of writing things down and whether it's sometimes better not to have written anything down because you can have an open conversation. Uh, are, are the rules too strict? I, it depends. Uh, you know, the, the party rules themselves are what's 
really interesting this time around. In an historical perspective, it may be the case that we should be flattening the playing field and, and really leveling up the competitiveness for other kinds of candidates to get into these political races. Uh, there's a strong normative case to make for that just by saying, shouldn't we have more options? Uh, at the same time, there are peculiarities to how teams and parties behave. So, for example, you, you can't play on the New York Yankees with a beard. You have to be clean-shaven, and you have to have a crew cut. That's one of the rules. So Johnny Damon, when he left the Red Sox and went to the Yankees, shaved. That's how it goes. And so the idea there is when you're, when you're in a party system, so when we're talking, you know, we've been talking primaries and caucuses for you know, a couple weeks to months now, the idea is there are certain rules imposed by parties on their own membership. In other words, there are certain credentials you've got to have. There are certain rituals you've got to fulfill in order to achieve the nomination uh, you know, for a particular party. And that, in, in this case, this year at least, has really shown its face in terms of the divide between states that award delegates on a proportional basis or whether on a winner-takes-all basis, where some of the rules have been changed since we did this last time in order to help a candidate who's either got a grassroots organization or who might not be the front-runner early on compete later on down the track. Now, that's, that's been complicated because we've got a particularly strong personality in Trump that's, that's really taken advantage of some of these you know, big early states. And you've got to ask, are these same personalities present in baseball? And you bet they are. So the idea is you know, the, the brazen personality that is Trump is, is reasonably connectable to a personality like Ty Cobb's, you know, a surly kind of guy. Or you know, the brazen confidence of a guy even like Pedro Martinez in, in a more recent era. But the idea is there, there are personalities in both sports that get infused into this system of rules. And so that sort of alchemy that happens in the middle there is really hard to control. Because it happens in front of 330 million people on primetime cable television. And so, you know, the, there's no guarantee at the end of the day about how all this plays out. And that's, again, where the art and the science mix. Because, yeah, sure, there's a, there's a normative story we can tell about this. There's hard statistics that we can talk about by way of numbers and how we think about strategy. But then there's sort of who's getting punched in the face to be Mike Tyson for a second, you know. I thought, as a Red Sox fan, you might be drawing a comparison between Trump and A-Rod for a second, but... Yeah, the, so yeah, I, I can go into a longer story about A-Rod in another podcast. This probably isn't the right spot, but suffice <laughs> to say, when your contract is underwritten by Goldman Sachs, you know you've made it as a baseball player. That's what I would just, say. Just for you, Dave, <laughs> who's A-Rod? Uh, Aaron Rodriguez was a player for the Boston Red Sox, and he became a New York Yankee. There's a particular roster of players that we've got buried deep under the ground in Boston of players who have gone from the Red Sox to the Yankees, uh, and, and it's not a very friendly list. <laughs> Of the rules. Again, it's it's what you choose to adhere to. So the uh, this gets into a whole conversation about finances, uh, steroids, all of the above. Mm -hmm. Which can, in some well, maybe not with steroids, but can be applied to some aspects of politics in terms of loose interpretations of the rules. Sure, and, sure. And uh, when people decide to do what they do and how they do it. Right, with like the the firewall that's supposed to exist between super PACs and campaigns and how sure. this, this election season in particular. You know, we've seen that firewall kind of crumbling. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, and there's an ethical imposition on players in both games, which is that fans and believers expect something from the celebrity. And, you know, the idea there is, I, I don't want to harp too much about this part, but there's a certain nostalgia that a lot of the population feels, particularly older populations, in both baseball and politics, for an era where 
both contests were run by war heroes and diplomats and you know even-tempered people who were just nice guys and so the you know you think back to days where there was a different kind of character who made the press and these days the spectacle and the spark and the glitter sells a lot and so the consequence is you get some really big personalities but the ethical imposations you know not to pick on trump too much in in this podcast you know clinton is in the same boat right now in in the email sense which is to say that there's a certain expectation that folks have for how she ought to have behaved in the past and they may or may not hold her to that in in terms of the electorate and uh, voting numbers. Well, should we get into your your argument for a comparison to American <laughs> football? Yeah. yeah so uh, there's there's one reasonably simple uh, comparison to draw by way of moving from American baseball to American football in the political sphere, uh, and that's simply that. And to jump around again to a boxing analogy, the gloves are off. We're in a little bit more of a gladiatorial mode than we have been in a long time. It's pretty hard hitting. And we're connecting heads at the same time. So, I mean, my, my notes go on for a whole page about why this is relevant. But, again, one of the things to think about is the structural setup uh, in terms of thinking about how a league like the MLB is structured as opposed to a league like the NFL. And part of that is how even the playing field is for teams, uh, how easy it is to be a fan of a losing team. Because, quite frankly, in baseball, for a long time, from, from you know, the 19 teens to 2004, the uh, you know the Red Sox were a losing team. Well, so it's not like the Chicago Cubs. Exactly. So our, we've we've got great empathy for the Cubs now that we're back on our feet, and so we're trying to help you guys out a little bit if we can. <laughs> but the need uh, just... they need encouragement, encouragement. But the uh, but these are the stories that you tell. So in other words, you know, folks who are constantly let down by their party, it's hard to be a diehard fan of a losing party. And believe me, it can be done, but it's it's tough to keep your people together. And so there's this notion where in an era where there's a flattening of the accessibility to the main stage. So at a time when, you know, you can go viral on the Internet and be an overnight sensation and access, you know, 100 million pairs of eyes across the world. uh, Does that mean it's a more level playing field for those folks that we choose to include in a political process as candidates for office? And I think maybe the answer is maybe. I don't think it's a hard yes or a hard no. Um, but, you know, statistically speaking and structurally speaking, there's an important comparison to be made, too. Uh, football is played for shorter amounts of time in a game than baseball. So you're looking at baseball's, you know, three and a half hours. And despite the fact that, you know, it takes up the same amount of airtime for the most part, football games are a lot shorter. So the notion here is we've got structurally segmented sort of battles where we go from quarter to quarter looking for the next result, trying to predict what happens in the next quarter. And, you know, you can think about this this particular campaign season by looking at the debates. How many debates have we seen now on the Republican and Democratic side? We've got a laundry list, and every time it's like a boxing match that goes 10 rounds. And so the idea is it's become much more short-term focus on a win rather than long-term 162 games uh, in the sense that that's the stories that we've been telling. Um, but, you know, there's, there's something equitable about the structure of a game that the NFL puts on that's not as equitable about the type of contest that happens at the multi-sort of layer in terms of the regular season, the playoffs, and then the World Series that the MLB puts on. And that, I mean, maybe that's a powerful thing and maybe that's an important analogy to start making. But whether the conversation goes from, like, at-bats and home runs to fourth downs and punting the ball, I, I don't know if it's going to get that deep. 
but the numbers don't lie. I think it's like 67% of people this year said uh, they prefer football to baseball now. Uh, it's a lot easier to watch, actually. So the idea is in a regular season, your team is only playing once a week as opposed to a couple nights a week. Uh, and to know whether you're going to beat another team, you don't have to go best of five. You don't have to go best of seven in a series. You can just play one game and see what the result is the next day. So there's a digestibility that is probably truer of football than it is of baseball in a short-term thinking kind of way. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's not how we should go. Maybe we should go back to this longer-term vision of statesmen and role models and diplomats who are out there playing baseball and catch with their friends. And so right now, I think we're in a football mode, if that makes any sense, despite thinking 160 games ahead. There's also the the comparison in terms of the readiness to change the rules and adapt to new technology. Sure. So football is sure. much was much quicker to take on uh, the instant replay. Oh yeah. And integrate that with the actual referees on the on the field, and then but with baseball, I mean, it's like to get a to get a rule change there, it's like you literally have to go before Congress, Congress sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's I mean that's an important thing too to think about. I mean. In the political realm, things change slowly. And so despite the fact that we've seen some rule changes recently in terms of the nominating procedures, generally speaking, we're in the same mode we've been in for a while now. I don't, I don't totally agree with that, though. I mean, so where do, you, where do you think we've diverged? Yeah, so you, I mean, you look at Bill Clinton's campaign um, in the 90s, probably a few hundred people worked for him. And you look at the Obama campaigns, both of them and now... And I mean, any of the campaigns mm -hmm. of the 21st century, you have thousands and thousands of people of working on these. And then you also look at the tactics that were being used. It used to be like leaflets, and maybe you go knock on doors in your neighborhood, and now we have highly strategic targeting data. Right. And you have, um, you know, moving from TV broadcast message to very sliver segmented specific messages that you can deliver online by. Mm -hmm matching a voter ID with an IP address. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that you look at the way that campaigns have been run over the last 20 years, and you're looking at completely different technology that's being used. Absolutely. So I, I agree 100%, and I, I think we agree at the end of the day. So my, the way that I would respond to that is to say that the rules of the game have stayed the same. Game play and strategy have changed drastically. And this is one of the one of the top reasons, for example, that politics can be equated a little bit to Major League Baseball in the sense that there are only certain franchises that can play that kind of ground game. In other words, you've got to be able to field the operatives to go out and play a grassroots game. You've got to have a big enough fan base to do stuff like direct mail. You've got to do you know, customer analytics just like you would do electorate analytics in the sense that You've got to deal with bigger populations, with more complicated statistics, more targeted messaging, and quite frankly, it doesn't come cheap. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's something like the the last time we had midterms, I think the midterms election alone, this is outside of a presidential election, cost something like $3.5 billion. And so when it comes time to, you know, have a presidential campaign again, the number's just, it's like a factor of 10. It's unbelievable. So you don't see the the rise of Citizens United as a rule change is more of a strategy. So that's a because funding that's, rule change. Yeah. So this is like saying to, to baseball, you know, you no longer have to give the league a cut of your sweatshirt, you know, merchandising fees. You can just put it all in your pocket. This is this is a different way to up the, the sort of stakes. Um, spending caps. Yeah. So do I see it as a rule change? I see it as a strategic change. 
in the sense of the game still stays the same. It's still about delegates in the lead-up to a nomination. It's still about electoral votes. In other words, the scoring of the game is still done the same. It's just who's doping and who's not. Mm -hmm. So this is the real question about campaign finance now. In other words, what are our ethical standards? What are our constitutional standards? Uh, for how, in a lowercase c, not capital C, that's important. Uh, in other words, what do we believe ought to be imposed by way of standards of behavior? And so in the campaign finance world, the question is, are super PACs and is dark money, I mean, are these things not palatable to an electorate? And that's when you're going to see real change. But, you know, it's a, this, this goes outside of sports, but the de Tocqueville line from way back when is that Americans love equality, but they dread revolutions. And the point there is it's really hard to change these kind of things easily. So if you're going to have a constitutional amendment, you've got to get it ratified by 50 states. And so this is a whole project. And so the idea of making a big sort of constitutional proclamation that we're not going to have super PACs anymore is probably not going to happen. Uh, that being said, it's a new part of the landscape. And so, you know, just like in baseball, where technologies and training change, strategies, you know, how we recruit players, you know, scouts who are going out there using all kinds of different methodologies to pick the next best player, these things are sort of infectious. And you see the same in the political world, which is to say that the first time somebody finds a legal way to use super PACs, of course everybody else has to jump on it because that's how you get the even playing field. It's really hard to be the Pittsburgh Pirates. It's really hard to not play with a full sort of tank of gas. And, and that's the consequence of the strategic change, which is to say that here's what the game allows, and here's what we'll go pursue knowing that. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I, th I think that makes sense. So that's it for Extra Innings here at the ballpark. Thank you to Derek Vallis for chatting baseball, football, and politics with us. Well, happy to help and yeah. play ball. Yeah. <laughs> the Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron. That's me, with contributions from co-hosts Chris Gilson and Sophie Donzelman, and also with help from the LSE's Hi-Fi Bid Fund and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rio Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. We love them. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Tune in next time when we'll be discussing the almighty dollar and making sense of monetary policy. And as Yogi Berra used to say, it ain't over till it's over. And now, it's over. Go White Sox! There's enough Yogi Berra quotes to go all day oh, long, yeah. but my favorite is, you can observe a lot by watching. <laughs> <laughs> He's my favorite. Yeah, there's plenty of others. We're going to turn this team around 360 degrees. You can go all day with these.